Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Today, author and now filmmaker Joe Lacanti sits down with Front Porch Republic editor Jeff Bilbro on the campus of Grove City College. They discuss the collaborative friendship of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, a pair who have given the world great works of fantasy deeply rooted in reality. Find your way home. With me today is Joe Lacanti, who is the author of A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, and Heroism, and The Cataclysm of 1914-1918. Tonight I'm going to see the first episode of the new film series based on this book, which I'm quite excited about. So thanks for being here with me today. Jeff, terrific to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So we always start off by asking our guests what home means to them. Front Porsche public readers are often admirers of the Hobbit's love of the Shire. So just tell us a little bit about your background. What does home, home mean to you? Yeah, I was raised, thanks for asking that question. I was raised in a wonderful, loving Catholic Christian family, Italian-American family. My dad was born in southern Italy, and he and his parents, they left uh, fascist Italy in the 1930s to come to the United wow. States. Settled in Brooklyn. That's on dad's side. Mom's side, my grandfather left Giuseppe Aiello, for whom I'm named, Joseph Aiello. He left the island that he was born in, a little island no one's ever heard of, Ventoden, off the coast of Naples. He left 100 years ago this year, Jeff. Wow. He left in 1921. He was 16 years old. And the occupation listed on the manifest, on the, on the SS Patria, the boat he sailed on, his occupation is listed as barber. Well, this is a great American story. He comes to New York. Within about 10 years or so, he's 16, within about 10 or so years, he owns his own barbershop in Midtown Manhattan. He's not far from uh, Penn Station, living in Brooklyn, and uh, makes a living, and then has four kids and 13 grandkids, and here we are. So it's it's a wonderful experience, a a real loving home, and... You know, your parents and grandparents and cousins, extended family, yeah. they're an anchor through life. They're just an anchor through life. This uh, community of men and women, your family, that that accepts you unconditionally. It's one of the great gifts God's given us. So, yeah, uh, I'm very blessed. It's a great story. Well, I want to talk about your book and then get into the film series that is you're spitting off from that. And one of the great themes in your book is the contrast between Tolkien and Lewis and so many other writers of their generation. Yeah, yeah. So many, you know, it's a cliche to talk about how the Great War precipitated the loss of faith for that generation. What was it about the experience that Tolkien and Lewis had, about their friendship, about, well, you tell me, that enabled them to, to sort of weave this horrible experience into a more redemptive narrative? Yeah, it's a terrific question because Lewis, as you know, he's an atheist going into the First World War and he comes out an atheist. He is an atheist yeah. in a foxhole, right? Yeah. And his poetry, he thought he was going to be a poet early on. His poetry during the period is very, very gloomy, very cynical. I'll try to quote a couple lines from memory. The good is dead. Let us curse God most high. The good is dead. I mean, this is pretty serious, sober stuff. It will be, uh, eventually, it'll be his association with people like J.R.R. Tolkien and others, uh, men 
of Christian faith mm -hmm. who will bring him to a point of faith and out of that kind of cynicism. Other, but other authors will, will play a huge role uh, in his life. George MacDonald will be yep. one of them. Lewis talks about him right to the end of his life, yeah. the impact of George MacDonald, who taught him to learn to love goodness. That's how he talked about yeah. MacDonald. So even as he's an atheist, he's reading these authors who are kind of firing up his imagination, stirring up that sense of longing, huge theme in Lewis's yeah. life, of course, theme of longing, and MacDonald was one of those writers. So that will help him avoid the deep cynicism and disillusionment that so many men experience, men and women experience after the First World War. Tolkien goes in as a believing Catholic, and he, his faith is intact. I think there's a couple of things going on with these men that uh, allow them uh, to come out of that conflict and to use it for good and to allow it to uh, um, challenge and inspire their literary imagination in ways that maybe no one would anticipate. I think there's a couple of things going on. One is these guys were grounded in the classical Christian tradition, the great texts, the, the great works of Homer and Virgil, Milton, Dante. I mean, they had this as part of their mental furniture. And if you think about some of those works, there's just there's such a realism about the human condition. That's why they're so enduringly important, despite what some of our friends on the left and the yeah. cancel culture would want to say. They're enduringly important. They describe the human condition in its frailty. And so they are, they are grounded in that tradition, the moral realism of that tradition. I think that helped them uh, as they're facing the, the trenches uh, in France. I think it helped them. But of course, what helped them ultimately is their anchor in the deepest truths of the Christian faith. And that is true for both Tolkien and Lewis, that they understood the tragedy of the human condition because of sin and the fall, but they also understand the hope of redemption. And they genuinely have this transcendent view of life, the human person, what God is going to do at the end of time. That's the great source of hope and consolation for both these men that's reflected in their writings. That ultimately is, is of course, what, what helps them helps them to maintain a kind of moral equilibrium. And yeah. if you think about it, Jeff, and we can talk about this some more, what they're facing from that vantage point in Great Britain, they're seeing the rise of these great totalitarian ideologies, communism, fascism, scientism, we can get into that, yep. Uh, eugenics. They've got a ringside seat in a way that we as Americans didn't really have. Yeah. Because we're over there separated by the Atlantic Ocean. As the Brits as the Brits like to say, we came into the war late, <laughs> we suffered the least, and we came out the strongest. Yeah. Not true in Europe. So they're seeing the rise of these ideologies and the great disillusionment with democratic capitalism, with Christianity, with the ideals of Western Civ. All that's gone by the boards for a lot of intellectuals, right? And that's pretty sobering stuff. And one of my uh, arguments I'm making both in the book and in the film series is that they are deliberately pushing back against the cynicism, the degradation of the individual that's going on in the writings around them and the culture around them. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think that combination of a, a realism about the human condition and human frailty with, you know, later on for Lewis and at the outset for Tolkien, uh, faith in the redemptive arc of of God's story is yes. is you have to have both both poles. They right? do. Um, they do. And, and maybe that's that's a way to get into this other one of the themes I love about this book is the faith. I shouldn't say faith, but the value they place on imagination and myth. Yes. And uh, I love this quote. You have it in your book from Lewis after finishing the Lord of the Rings. I think in manuscript form, and he writes this letter to Tolkien, and he says, "No romance can repel the charge of escapism." With such confidence because you know <laughs> Lewis writes a lot about how people see 
myth and yes. imagination is sort of escapist yes. for kids. Yes. So when is imagination and myth escapist? Because it can be at times. But how can we recover its good parts as a vital resource for responding wisely to a, a broken and fallen world? That's a terrific question. One I need to think more deeply <laughs> about. We all need to think more deeply yeah. about. But uh, when Lewis read The Lord of the Rings in manuscript form before it was published, and, he, and then he wrote a couple of reviews, yeah. Yes, and they're so insightful his yeah. reviews because he, he he beats back the charge of escapism. Exactly, he says the one thing we don't do we we don't escape our ordinary lives. We go into this world and we come out fortified, morally challenged, aware of uh, the difficulties and the frailties of life, but also inspired by what the smallest acts of compassion and heroism yeah. can accomplish, and of course with grace as the added feature here. Yeah. So uh, the the power of story, the power of myth, I think what these men both understood in a way few authors did is that uh, myth can tell deep truths about the human story and the human condition. And it can do it in a way through, through storytelling, through, through, through the imagination, by creating new worlds and new languages. It can sneak past people's defenses yeah. and their prejudices and introduce them to these characters of great depth of moral tragedy, but also moral beauty. And myth and and uh, fantasy does that in a way that other types of writing just don't do. You enter into that world and now you're caught up in it. And now you're like, you, it's almost like you're an actor in that world. Yeah. You're a player in that world. You, you, you connect and you empathize. You're challenged and inspired. So my own personal experience, I came to The Lord of the Rings much later in life than most people. I was in my 40s. Wow. I was doing my John Locke dissertation in at, at King's College in London, yep. living in London. I'm studying John Locke the whole day, 10 hours of Locke. And then I would have a quick little meal. And then I'm off to a little English pub in London with my Lord of the Rings, reading it for wow. the first time. And it wasn't escapist. Yeah. It was now, I feel morally invigorated and challenged in a way that I just could not have anticipated. You participate in the story. And the, to, to me, both the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings, there is such a realism about life, about the tragedy of it, but then also the source, the great source of hope and consolation. Yeah. And so I found it so thoroughly uh, encouraging and challenging to be immersed in that world yeah. and still do. You, you yeah. read the Lord of the Rings again and again. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> That's one of the great joys of having children. Getting to get an excuse to read it again. And, and your story reminds me uh, of Lewis's account of McDonald and how reading McDonald for him baptized his imagination. Yes. And like yes. you said earlier, gave him this vision yes. of the good. Yes. And I think that's so important. He says um, in a letter, I think it is, uh, he picks up fantasies. And the timing here is important. This is why I love kind of bringing the historian's perspective. Yeah. He, he picks up MacDonald in 1916, the two years into the First World War. He's a young man. He knows he's going to be drafted. He knows he's going to have to uh, enlist one yeah. way or the other. He's, he's from Northern Ireland, so it's been postponed. Uh, his enlistment's been postponed, but it's going to happen. And he's standing on a, on a train platform waiting to go back to Great Bookham, he's being tutored by a guy named William Kirkpatrick, a yep. hard-boiled atheist, where he learns how to think and to reason by Kirkpatrick. And he picks up Fantasties, and he starts reading it on the train. And there's something about, if you know, if you, tra if you travel on trains like I have a lot, from Washington yep. to New York a lot, it just kind of opens you up to things. And he's reading Fantasties, and he says, I knew after a few hours that I had crossed a great frontier. Yeah. What happened? McDonald's opens up this world of goodness and beauty that 
it just reached into his imagination. He couldn't get the book out of his mind. And I think in the last weeks of his life, in different letters, he's still recommending Fantasties yeah. and George MacDonald to people. That's the kind of impact it had on him. It opened him up as an atheist to the idea of the transcendent in a way that few authors could have. And maybe that was particularly you know, prescient for him in that moment on the brink of going into yeah. the war and, right. and experiencing those wars. And think about it. It's two years into the war. So everybody knows now this war is not going to be over right. anytime soon. This it's is not, not going to be a romantic war. It's not a romantic war. This is not a stroll to the park. Yeah. And then you're back by the time the leaves fall on the trees as right. they were promised. There were already millions of men dead. So the, the seriousness of life that has to be in the backdrop in his mind now as a young man, that's an aspect, I think, of both Tolkien and Lewis. We don't quite appreciate the times in which they live. They both fought in the First World War. They both had to live through a Second right. World War. There's no one alive today who can, who can say that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe to pick up on this this notion of living through the Second World War, I, I recently reread or, or read uh, Alan Jacobs' book about Year of Our Lord, 1943, ah, yeah, right? Yeah. And Lewis has that brilliant lecture, uh, Learning in Wartime, yeah. that I love to teach. Yeah. You know, why is it that both, that Lewis in particular, and I guess Tolkien too, turn to the goods of humanistic, liberal arts, you might say, education, as the best response to technocracy, scientism, communism, and fascism, this kind of moral, formative education? Uh, I guess you already talked about the the resources of the great texts tradition. Yeah, think about the, the the two texts that were especially important to both these men. Beowulf, yeah, for Tolkien. He's a Beowulf scholar. He changed the whole Beowulf yep. uh, direction of scholarship. I just thought that last week and talked Did about you, his you, great essay. You know this better yep. than I do then. And then for Lewis, it's the Aeneid. Yes. And he says that Virgil's work, outside of the Bible, this was the most important work on his professional life. Now, that's an incredible thing wow. to say. And then, you, so you, we, we ought to, some of us ought to spend some time like reading those works. <laughs> yeah. And I have. Yeah. And trying to understand what is so appealing, what was so transformed for both these men about Beowulf for Tolkien and the, the Aeneid for Lewis. And I don't have, I have only a partial answer on this, Jeff. I'm still sorting it out. Yeah. But I think the partial idea is the hero will do the right thing, will stick his neck out, he'll go into the fray, into the battle against evil with the real prospect of failure, yeah. the probability of failure, but he will do it regardless because he's called to do it, because it's the right thing to do. That appealed to both men yeah. at a powerful, deep level in a way that I don't think we can quite appreciate. We have, there's such a cynicism, I think, today about heroism and, right. and all the rest of it. But these guys, their moral imagination was gripped by these by these figures, by Beowulf, um, by Aeneas, and the great callings on their life to, lives to go into the in, into the fire yeah. uh, at, with the real likelihood they are not going to survive, but they're doing it because it, it is the right thing to do. That for them is heroism. Not that you know you're going to win the battle, right? But the fact that you've chosen the right side, and the right side, as Malcolm Geet, uh, one one of our uh, interviewees in the in yeah. the film, great scholar, Malcolm Geet says yeah. the right side is not. The winning side, the right side is the right side. Yeah, That was so compelling to both these men through their lives. And you see it through their works again and again. You see it not only in the Chronicles of Narnia with Lewis, yeah. you see it in the Space Trilogy. Yep. You just see it all over the place. Yeah. And for Tolkien, he comes back to this theme again and again and again. The hero up against impossible odds, uh, giving his life for the right cause. Right? And what isn't, isn't Tolkien's phrase, uh, I, I think this is, you would know this better than I do, but he has that phrase about fighting the long defeat. Yeah. Is that in a letter, maybe, or? 
Yeah, I think that's I think in a letter. So. But I, I think it's a great image. You know, yes. that the question is not, are you on the winning side? But the question is, uh, are you going to be faithful yes. despite the circumstances? Yes. And again, you get that realism yes. and that hope. Yes. And that's a, that is a virtue yeah. that is, that is, you could argue there's a, in the ancient world, it's there. Yep. In Greek and Roman literature, the great epic literature, it's there. It's, of course, given a new meaning in, with the Christian gospel. Right. Right? right. A new meaning. And I think the combination of the two was so powerful. Yeah. They knew how to take it out of its purely humanistic setting yeah. and give it a new meaning. So, for example, what Tolkien then gives us is this term, you catastrophe. Right. right? The undoing of a catastrophe. Yeah. So, yeah. The hero is not going to win the day. He's not going to accomplish his task at the end because the forces of evil within and outside of him are just too great. Yeah. He needs help from the outside. He needs grace from the outside, hence the catastrophe. So what do we have in the, in the Lord of the Rings? Spoiler alert for your, for your <laughs> listeners here. Frodo does not really, at the end of the day, accomplish his task, does right. he? The ring is mine, he says. And he puts it back on his finger as he's on the edge of the yeah. Mount Doom. And what happens? Well, it's Gollum, <laughs> this, hide- this hideous you know, creature, this despicable creature, this force of evil, bites the ring, uh, bites his finger to, to seize the ring and then falls into the cracks of doom. And so the undoing, the, the, the ring is destroyed, not by Frodo, not by the fellowship, but by what? A sudden miraculous grace is yeah. the phrase that Tolkien uses, yeah. a sudden miraculous grace. That's how I think they they took that ancient pagan idea of heroism and they baptized it. Yeah. Right. And, and and speaking of Beowulf, you know, it's such a strong theme in that book, in part because it's written by this Christian poet with these pagan stories, and yeah. so you get the pagan notion of fate. Yes. Kind of with this overlay of the Christian trying to think about providence and redemption. Yes. But you don't have the catastrophe in Beowulf. It's, it's that's right. Grim. Yeah. And Tolkien provides it with the that's right with the Christian narrative. That's right. So that's a good and and you know and and Virgil in the Aeneid, there'll be the founding myth of ancient right. Rome. If you follow the story, Aeneas is is called various things: the noble Aeneas, the brave, the courageous. When he wanders off course, when he thinks as he falls in love with, with Dido, when he thinks, well, maybe we can found Rome, uh, found the new country, not in Rome. We can do it in, in Carthage over there, <laughs> hanging out with Dido. No, no, no. You've drifted from your calling. And now he's in real, real trouble, and he needs a kind of stern warning and awakening to get back on track. So as Lewis, I think, absorbed that work, he's so aware of the temptations, the things that take us from our callings, yeah. that, can, that can lead us uh, off into the woods, into the weeds. And, and for Tolkien, it's exactly the same thing, right? Yeah. The, the story is filled with characters who they start out right, and then they go wrong, yeah. right? B- Boromir is the great example, right. isn't he? Or Susan. Or, yes. Yeah. Uh, Lewis, it's the same kind of realism, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think that sort of Christian realism, if you will, is so um, embedded in yeah. their works. And I think that's part of the universal appeal, right? And, and, and the sense of realism. And I think it's why it appeals to people across faith traditions. I mean, think about it. We will sit in the theater and we'll watch The Lord of the Rings with who knows is sitting in that theater yeah. with us. All manner of pagan. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean that in a good, happy right. way. right. Uh, and we're all having the same response at various moments in the film to either a tragedy, a betrayal, or a great act of heroism. Everybody's responding essentially the same way yeah. because uh, the way God has made us yeah. in our human fallenness, there's still this sensibility because the image of God has not been obliterated. There's still a sensibility of the good, the true, the noble, the beautiful. That has not been erased from our memory, it seems to me. And I think Tolkien and Lewis hold that view, and it's, again, embedded in their works. Yeah. 
And yet so much of our, I'm going to ask you to give some, a word of encouragement or advice to young people today, because so much of the narratives that dominate the cultural imagination right now seem to emphasize the apocalyptic or the, the yeah. overwhelming odds, whether it's in terms of injustice in society or climate ecological yeah. problems or um, yeah. you know, people like people think that there's there's no hope and I think yeah. we have a clear sense of the fate yeah but what's remarkable about these authors is that they recognize that they're yes. they're not uh, escapists that's right but they also emphasize that we nonetheless have personal responsibility yes. and freedom uh, I love this quote from yes. Sam I think this is on like uh-huh. I don't know page one fifty two yeah. I expect they had lots of chances like us of turning back, only they didn't. Yeah, I love that uh, So, line so what too. can we learn from, from yes. Lewis and Tolkien that would help us act well yes. in these circumstances? I love that question. I love that question. Thank you for asking it. Let me read you a few lines. Yeah, please. This is a letter that Lewis wrote to Owen Barfield. Owen Barfield was one of the original Inklings. Yep. He knew Barfield back in 1919 at Oxford. He joins the Inklings uh, almost immediately. They're friends through life. And this is 1938, September. And if you know the, the history here, we've had the Munich Pact. Yes. We have Hitler uh, essentially seizing a portion of Czechoslovakia for the promise of peace. But, but war is in the air. And there's a real profound sense of anxiety now that Germany is at it again. We're going to have to go through this again. So here's a letter that Lewis writes to Owen Barfield. And my film team, we interviewed his grandson, who's named Owen Barfield. When we were in Oxford, and that was a wonderful interview, so stay tuned for that. But here's what he writes to his dear friend Owen Borfield, talking about another context. I have a lot more to say on this when we meet, that is, if we meet. For, of course, our whole joint world may be blown up before the end of the week. I can't feel in my bones that it will, but my bones know damn all about it. If we are separated, God bless you, and thanks for a hundred good things I owe to you more than I can count or weigh. In some ways, we've had a corking time these 20 years. <laughs> wow. Doesn't that make you love Lewis all yes. the more? That he, they're going into the valley and they don't know what's going what's gonna to come out of that. They don't even know if Britain's going to survive or Western civilization's going to survive. Not in 1938, they don't. And here's what's so encouraging, Jeff. What does he then do in response? What does Tolkien do in response? They get on with their callings. They get on with their vocations. And I remember what they're paid to do as academics at Oxford. They are paid to teach courses, to grade papers, to do academic research, to deliver lectures. They're not paid to write their fiction. They're not getting a salary to do that. In fact, it's kind of frowned upon at the time. They're supposed to be involved in this kind of scholarship stuff. But they can't not write. They pursue this other aspect of their callings. They're academics, they're instructors, they're scholars. That's part of their calling. But there's another part of their calling before God. And it's to write these great imaginative stories about good and evil. So when are they doing that exactly? Well, they're kind of doing that in the evenings and Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's when they're doing it. Yeah. And the fact that they were so devoted to that aspect of their vocational sense, sensibility, that is so deeply encouraging to me because it says to me, you know, Lacani, stop complaining about your life and your time, what you don't have to do. Remember what these guys did, not only with the pressures of ordinary life, but in the teeth of a second global conflict. Because that's when they really start writing their great epic works. The Hobbit was published in 1937, before the Second World War. Tolkien is writing The Lord of the Rings right through the Second yeah. World War. Lewis writes the first of the Space Trilogy, published in 1938. Screw tape letters, that starts Second World War. He gets the idea for the Chronicles of Narnia 
during the Second World War. The bombs going off in London, little children being sent right. out to the countryside. Well, what do you think is going on there? Well, of course, it's the Blitz yeah. on London. Yeah. So my point is, in the midst of, a, of the darkest of times, the onslaught of Nazi Germany and fascism, totalitarianism, when it really looks like democracy and freedom are on the wrong side of history, these men are writing some of the most inspiring, challenging, transformative pieces of literature the world's ever seen. If that doesn't encourage our audience... Yeah. If it doesn't yeah. encourage your students and mine, they don't have a pulse. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And I think I think starting with that letter to, to Barfield is a reminder, too, of one of the, the sources of courage in, in the face of these odds is friendship. Yes. So their friendship yes. with each other, their friendship with the other Inklings and others. Yes. And you see that, you talk about that in, the, in their fiction as well. Yes. There's such rich friendships, the fellowship, yes. The, yes. the children in, in Narnia. I think it's so important. It's crucial, and it's it's partly out of their own life experience uh, yeah. that, that plays such a value in friendship. This is where I think the First World War is important. We tend to romanticize the Second World War, band of brothers, you know, the fellowship of guys. Well, there were, it was a band of brothers effect in the First World War as well. Right. English guys, English soldiers would typically enlist from the same town and uh, arrive in the same regiment or battalion, right? And so they're going through that conflict in the, in the, sa- in the same way, really, that the yeah. World War II guys are going through it as a, as a fellowship, as a community, as a band of brothers. So they understood what it was to be in a trench and not sure if you're going to survive the bombardment and the guy next to you, you you're depending on him for your life. Yeah. As you were. So they had that intense sense of comradeship in the First World War. And I am absolutely convinced that this helped to reinforce that concept and that value for these men after uh, they re- return to civilian life, because immediately they're forming their their clubs. Yes. Yes. Immediately, uh, Tolkien forms the Coal Biters Club. Right. Uh, they're reciting uh, I- Icelandic sagas in the original Icelandic. <laughs> Only scholars from Oxford yes. would do such a thing. But it's bringing these guys together. I actually, my hunch is that Tolkien started that group so he could pull Lewis into it mm. and develop the friendship. That's why I actually think he started because he just wanted to get Lewis into a discussion group and he and he knew the Icelandic. And Lewis joined and that was the beginning yeah. really of their kind of coming together to discuss literature. And then, of course, the Inklings. Yeah. Diana Glyer, I have to you know, uh, mention yep. her name because she's done a wonderful book ri- about writers in community. Yes. Tolkien and Lewis as writers in community. We interview her for the film series. You'll see her in okay. episode one. And she really makes this point. It's just you can't explain their creative works outside of the community. They weren't these lone writers off on a mountaintop doing their stuff. Tolkien literally reads out virtually every chapter of The Lord of the Rings to C.S. Lewis, yeah. either one-on-one or in the company of the Inklings, yeah. and says explicitly, were it not for his, Lewis's constant encouragement and demands for more, I never would have brought The Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. Yeah. No C.S. Lewis, no Lord of the Rings. Right? Lewis did the same with his own works, reading them out loud uh, to, the, to the Inklings and getting all kinds of uh, critique and feedback. Yeah. Can you imagine being in that room? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a great... Uh, a great image for sure and maybe that's a good segue to the film you know if you could what has the process of going from this book to the film been like and oftentimes books are pretty solitary yeah and obviously this documentary series is deeply it's in conversation yeah so maybe it's also more communal but yeah what has it been like to take a take a book and turn it into a film series well the first thing i have to say is that working with the film team with uh, ralph linhart and jock peterson my, my key guys cinematographer and director the three of us, uh, really, the core of the thing, we got volunteers and others helping out along the way. And we are so different. Hmm. And we have different uh, sensibilities. And uh, it's wonderful being on the set 
And the line I often hear from these guys is I'm trying to deliver my lines as the, as the narrator. And there's no, there's no screen. I have to just head, deliver my lines, you know, from memory. And the best time to film is in the mornings, of, of course, when we have the light just yep. right. And the line I hear from these guys often is, Lacanti, please deliver your lines. We're losing the light. So <laughs> we are working together as a team. And the wonderful thing there, Jeff, is that we have to sort out our differences yeah. because there's a larger cause. The cause is to make the film. We've got to resolve our differences pretty much on the spot and treat each other with Christian charity, even if we intensely disagree about things. That's a wonderful thing to do, yeah. to have a mission larger than yourself. Yeah. That's how it's different from solitary writing. These guys are pushing back on my script all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it's a very different thing, writing a book and then going to a screenplay, because you know a book is, you can kind of meander a bit, you get it, there's little, you know, little footnotes yeah. kind of things, and it can be, you can, have, you can have some complex sentences, can't do that with a screenplay. Yeah. You, gotta, you gotta move that, that, uh, that viewer along from start to finish, Every single line has to matter. Every single line has to pull people along. No padding, no diversions, and it's got it's to sing. Yeah. So yeah. that's a challenge, I have to, have to say. I'm not, I'm not where I want to be, but we're getting better as we go along, along all that. The other thing I'd say is this. As I've gotten into the, this project, I have learned more about their lives because the book just really deals with the First World War. We wanted to tell the story, not just the impact of the First World War, but now as they're facing a Second oh, World War. Okay. Uh, something I didn't do in the book, and now I've discovered the importance of the Second World War in creating a sense of urgency to get on with your task, to get on with your mission, which didn't exist in the 1920s. But by 1938-39, when Britain is at war and the Blitz is on, now these guys are thinking, they have to be thinking, we have to just do whatever we can, do the best we can under these circumstances. And there's a certain sense of urgency that you pick up uh, with these guys, because this is when they're writing the great epic yeah. works, that I didn't quite appreciate when I worked on the on the on the book. Yeah. But now, as I've read their letters, gotten into the the correspondence, studied their works carefully, you're starting to see how yeah, the awareness they have of the Second World War is very clear. Tolkien writes a letter to his publisher, explaining why the Lord of the Rings is taking on a darker tone than The Hobbit, mm. and he says the current crisis has something to do with it. He won't say more than that in yeah. the letter, but it's obvious it's having an impact. You, how could it not? Yeah, men are going off and dying, and the casualty rate numbers are coming back every day. Yeah. Britain is being battered uh, by by the Nazis. America is on the sidelines till 1941. Right? right, France has fallen. Central and and Eastern Europe are in are in Nazi control or Soviet control. Yeah. It's a disaster. So they are ever mindful of this. It comes up in the letters when you start looking for it, you see it. And of course, now you see in their writings, all of the references to war and the conflict are there, it seems to be embedded in their works as well. Yeah. So that's interesting to see how it's both the communal aspect of creating the film, but also what you've learned in the process since writing the book. Yes, more research, more digging, more reading, especially the letters. It's a wonderful thing to read over a person's letters that he never tended to see published. I know, I'm worried about, that's going to... Going to be different, and and now no, we don't write letters the same yeah. way. But um, yeah. it's great. You know, the other other thing is the the audience for a film is often different than the audience for a book, right? Yeah. I, mean, I think the book sold well, and and I know people well beyond academic circles who have read it because people care about these writers. Yeah. But um, you mentioned earlier Peter Jackson's films certainly renewed interest in Tolkien yeah. for a new generation. Do you think that this film series might kind of reach a new generation of people who? should appreciate the fiction of Lewis and Tolkien, but might otherwise not be prompted to pick them up? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and we're going to find out. Uh, yeah. But I, here's one of my great hopes for the film series. 
I think it's going to potentially change the conversation about Tolkien and Lewis and their achievements in a good way. Because I think people will have a deeper appreciation for what they were able to do in an incredibly difficult, disastrous era. When the easiest thing for them to have done as scholars was with keep your head low, uh, focus on your classes and your students, um, your little writings, your little fictional writings about hobbits, Reapy Cheap the Mouse, that's not going anywhere. Don't waste your time with that. But they are determined to push back against the, really the, some of the darkest forces that human civilization has ever seen. Yeah. They genuinely are without exaggeration. And they, I think, in a way that many even biographers are not appreciated, they are deliberately pushing back against these forces, these degrading, dehumanizing forces in their writings, affirming the essential dignity of, of the human person made in the image of God, yeah. that our choices of the smallest hobbit echo into eternity, right? This is very deliberate. This inspires their work. And I think the films will help change the conversation that these men, their lives are bracketed by war, but out of the catastrophe of these two world wars, something beautiful has emerged. Not only their friendship, but these great creative works. So I put it in three words. If I had to, I had to summarize the whole series in three words. War, friendship, and imagination. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the crucible of war that really makes possible their remarkable friendship over decades. And it's their friendship that really makes possible the creation of their great imaginative works. War, friendship, and imagination. Again, it's one of the most inspiring things I've been involved with projects in a long time, and I hope it'll inspire others. I think when you frame it in that context, it accentuates the apparent absurdity, right? <laughs> of, of why would you bother wasting your time on yeah, yeah Reaper Cheap or or the Hobbits on these s stories? And the imagination can seem a woefully inadequate response to yes. these technological and yes. uh, these, these great evils. Yes. So, so hopefully, yeah, it changes the conversation. Maybe brings about yes. in our own own age. I think there is a lack of appreciation for the value of the imagination. Yes. Uh, yes. It's hard for us to think that's a, a sensible response. To, yes. To global problems. Just as Winston Churchill's speeches, I think, helped the British people yeah. to hang on yeah. at a crucial moment because of his his command of the English language, which was, has no peer. Yeah. Their work, uh, their works help to fortify people, morally to fortify them, I think, for the deep challenges, the degradation going on around. Because great, great fantasy, really deep fantasy, uh, that, that, where there's a richness to it and a depth, that's not escapist, yeah. as we were talking yeah. earlier. That's not that helps to fortify you for the challenges that you face in your everyday life because you connect with that character. You understand what heroism and sacrifice and compassion, you see what it looks like. Yeah. You see what it looks like. And I think you begin to internalize that. And uh, it's ennobling. It's empowering, right? Especially coming from a faith perspective. Yeah. We give the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the opportunity to use that story to remind us of what's good and true and beautiful, right? The Holy Spirit can bring these things to mind. So yes, we want our minds on Scripture. We we want God to use the Scripture and bring that back to our minds as well. But you know, there are passages from the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia that they also come back into my yeah. mind at yeah. certain moments and help me and inspire me to go on yeah. <laughs> too. Yeah. And that's I think that's grace. That's common grace, isn't it? In, in yeah. so many ways. And, and Tolkien, you know, Tolkien's whole idea of a sub-creator as yes. sort of faithfully working yes. with the materials that God yes. gives him and, yes. and 
offering those back to yes. the perpetrator. I mean, when, when we hear, when we read the line or we see it on the screen of Frodo saying, I don't know the way, I, I will take the ring even though I don't know the way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't stir you up a little bit. And again, right. you know, I'm a pulse, man. Come on. <laughs> right. And, and hopefully, as you say, uh, you walk out of the theater or you, you put the book down with a renewed sense of courage, courage to, exactly. to act in those ways yes. in your own life. Yes. So that it's it's not like a, a sort of turning away from the problems. Yes. But a fortification to face the that's problems right. with virtues you need. And maybe that's the key quality here, Jeff, is courage. Because it's the it's the virtue and the best of the ancient writers understood this, Lewis and Tolkien understood it. Courage is the virtue that makes all the other virtues possible. Right. 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 You don't you're not gonna have great patience or great compassion or great sacrifice without that quality of courage. It energizes these other virtues. And how do we cultivate courage as, a, as part of our character, as a deep, deep part of our character? Well, Scripture is, is our best ultimate guide, but these, are, these stories that, yeah. are, that come out of a Christian understanding of life they're also pretty good. Yeah, pretty good go. source. Virtues are cultivated with uh, models. We need models, models of people need models. to show us what this looks like. Yes. So, so I want the Apostle yeah. Paul, but I also want right. Frodo. Right. And I want the uh, the Pavenzi children That's too, right. right? That's right. Well, maybe you've already answered this with your three words, uh, war, friendship, and imagination. But maybe to close, what are you hoping that viewers will take away from this series when it comes out in full and hopefully a year or two? I keep coming back to their creative friendship in the midst of a crisis, and that they were faithful in that friendship. Um, and it wasn't friendship, quote-unquote, for its own sake. Yeah. It was friendship for a larger purpose. And there's a um, there's so many moments when the two of them would meet and discuss things, and you'll see this in the film series. During the worst of the wartime, these guys will get together, have a drink yep. <laughs> of whatever, <laughs> and then they'll read something from each other's works. And it's clear from the letters and all that this just helped him to carry on. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there was a line from Tolkien where he says, uh, friendship with Lewis compensates for much. Mm. And you kind of, you understand the, the, the struggle and the sorrow of their lives because they, they lost some of their closest friends in the First yeah. World War. They knew what it was like to experience great loss. And I think the friendship that they maintain with each other and the larger group of Inklings that they pursued deliberately, made sacrifices to be together, it was transformative. And I think that's a great lesson for us. We can't do this thing alone. Uh, yes, we have, if we're Christians, we have the spirit of Christ in us. We are not meant to, to live life outside of community. Yeah. We have to figure out what that community is going to be. Yes, it's our local church, but it's also broader than that. It's going to be a, a circle of people inside and outside that church who are going to be friends through life, companions, yeah. a band of brothers, a band of sisters through life. And this is a good time if you're a young person. It's a good yeah. time to begin cultivating yeah. those relationships. Lewis did that with Barfield, with, with Tolkien. Yeah. And that's when they, they were in their you know early 20s. Right. It was at that moment. And, right. and look at the fruit of that over decades. Yeah, yeah the, the success of the quest really does depend upon these rich Yes, supportive friendships in the community. The fellowship of believers. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Joe. What a treat. I'm looking forward to seeing the movie tonight, and I hope that listeners will have access to it before too long. Thanks so much, Joe. Great being with you. Find your way home.